I need the fastest thing on this lot. Sugar, I'm the fastest thing on this lot. Oh, mercy. all you movie junkies and cinephiles it's time for the sls cast with your hosts matt and tim and welcome one and all to episode 208 of the sls cast yes ladies and gentlemen this would be the generalized week order episode of the sls cast because it turns out that there just so happens to be exactly 208 generalized week orders on three labeled points. And while I was able to sound so studious and nerdtastic last week, I have no fucking clue what a generalized week order is. So, good luck, enjoy, but there's 208 of them. Uh, so, with that wonderful little bit of bait and switch knowledge because i don't know really where it came from i of course am matt and uh coming to us all the way from sunny california would be our resident sony employee tim so matt how, how are you feeling buddy i am feeling rather fantastic it sounds like it i do hope your levels are staying not in the red no, no, no. I would never I would never go into the red. Not with you. <laughs> it's not my time of the month. <laughs> well, not yet. The month is almost at an end though. Here we are, the twenty ninth of of uh November, as it were. But I'm doing great. Yes, I, I've been steadily consuming my victory at sea. A ten percent stout with coffee and vanilla. From my one of my favorite breweries ballast point for quite some time now i want to say really the only ballast point that i can drink is the stout the darker varieties of ballast point and everything else i had other other than the sculpin and the grapefruit sculpin just absolutely sucked in fact one of my least favorite beers of all time is their really shitty watermelon beer which i couldn't even tell you what it's even called <laughs> i just tried that last week jen is a big ipa fan and so she does like their sculpin and their grapefruit sculpin um i am not an ip fan ipa fan at all but i'm willing to you know always i'm, I'm at least willing to try them just you know see if anything tickles the old fancy there every once in a while and so i happened to catch that at total wine and more when i was there um last week and so i went ahead and picked one up for jen just to try you know and so she tried it and she was like holy crap and i'm like really and so i tried it and i was like jesus oh fuck yeah so i don't honestly i don't even know if she finished it it was that bad i've never (laughs) kept a six pack in my fridge for so long like it literally took (laughs) oh wait somebody's Drilling something, it sounds like. I can hear it. Noise. They're going to town up there. It's like... Hang on. Good. Oh, baby. Oh, baby, yeah. Oh, drill me harder. I do want a proper opening. I don't want... I'll cut all this out. <laughs> what? Come on. You know what? You know what? Drill me harder is part of your opening. 
Oh, actually, no. That that'll still that'll still be in there somewhere. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, good, great, <laughs> um, great, great. So the grapefruit sculpin I can drink, but I did have a really good grapefruity blood orange drink on Thanksgiving, and it's been drilled out of my mind right now. I I cannot think of it of what it is called. Are you a big fan of the blood orangey grapefruity type of beers, or are you strictly stouty? Well, honestly, on citrus-style lagers and ales, I actually lean towards a lemon. I am not a super big fan of the oranges and tangerines and stuff like that. Ooh, you must be a Leinenkugel fan, then. Uh, to a certain extent, yes. I love their Snowdrift Vanilla Porter. It's fantastic. Um, but no, on the whole, I do like darker beers better than the lighter beers. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean... I'll tell you what, give me a sax or lemon any day of the week. I know they don't make them anymore, but man, fantastic. So so how was your Thanksgiving? It was quintessential. Uh, it, I mean, turkey. Was, was that a play stuffing. on your last name? <laughs> quintessential. No, it, it truly was. Very very down-home traditional. Had had the fam come on out, uh, had some friends come along with them, and uh, we had a 22-pound turkey uh, roasted. And um, we had the bread stuffing from the turkey as well. And then, of course, we also had cornbread stuffing that was baked on the side. We had the gravy, the mashed potatoes, the green bean casserole, the uh, cranberry sauce, corn, broccoli. Uh, we had a sweet potato thing. Uh, there was pumpkin pie for dessert. There was an apple uh, a bake as well. The Cool Whip and was a plenty um, yeah, it was, I, I honestly, um, you know, I, my, my, my professor this evening said it best when he said, I don't think it could have been any more, uh, quintessential if the pilgrims had showed up. So it was, it was that kind of Thanksgiving and it was awesome. Uh, we had a, we had a blast at Santa's Wonderland, much like we had discussed before. I was, I was looking for my Marshall Frostbite selfie <laughs> from you. What? They're, they, they're posted on Facebook. You can see them. Is there is there one with just you and him, but with you with, like, a terrified face? No, no. There's one with me and my dad, and we're making manly faces. Because as my four, almost five-year-old daughter pointed out, um, he she thought that he was a she because when you look at the face, the face is very feminine. I mean, with the eyelashes and everything. So we we countered the feminine take on Marshall Frostbite with a very masculine pose. Um, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that, but I did think it was pretty interesting. So yeah. Anyway, so we did that, and then Friday we went and got the tree. Saturday we did the tree trimming, and uh, so that's all done, and it's it's actually all lit up right now. And uh, also Saturday the house got decorated. Uh, my wife and my dad um, took over the decoration of the outside of the house, and it, I, I gotta I gotta give them props. It looks great. So um, so the house is fully decorated for Christmas, and um, then we of course. Hit my favorite liquor store, Total Wine and More, and we got a whole bunch of beer, cigars. My dad and I smoked some cigars on Saturday night, and that was about it. What about you? How was the Dear God traffic jam from L.A. on Wednesday? 
It, you know, it was not too bad. We ended up leaving uh, a little bit ahead of schedule and got there within probably about uh, with stopping and eating a little bit and getting some gas, maybe seven and a half, six and a half, seven hours or so. So it actually wow, was not too well bad getting up north. Getting back, on the other hand, was a little bit of a problem. Like we we were all free sailing until we hit the goddamn grapevine, and that's when traffic started to stop and get a little congesty getting back into town Sunday night. But other than that, it wasn't too bad. Uh, on my end, the food was incredibly good. The ladies did a wonderful job. Uh, the turkey was, again, probably even better than last year's turkey, and last year's turkey was absolutely delicious. Some of the best green bean casserole. I don't know if you guys have the quintessential green bean casserole or not with your Thanksgiving dinners, but it's absolutely delicious, and I always look forward to it every year when I do have Thanksgiving or spend Thanksgiving up in Sacramento. But as we went to the significant other's grandparents' house, not as we were going there, but when we were there, we were asked to help put up their artificial Christmas tree up in their game room, family room area. And so, of course, we uh, we obliged, and we went up and set up the Christmas tree, put up the Christmas lights, put up some other decorations, and we were all sitting on the couches and, and enjoying some light conversation. And the grandfather stood up, and he went over to his little library. He has all these really cool old bookcasey things against the wall and it just feels like you're in an old person's library i guess and you know he's like looking through all these books and he's like you know i i sure hope whenever i do pass on at some point that these books just don't get thrown away because i've got some good ones here i've got some really good ones he puts it back and sits down and he looks over and he asks, so do you guys read a lot? It's like, well, you know, I, I don't read a whole lot um, as much as I used to, but I try to read, you know, a handful of books whenever I can at a time. And he was like, well, go take a look. Go take a look at these. Let me know if you want any of these books. And so I was looking at them from where I was sitting and just these beautiful, like, old leather-bound books. And, you know, I've been around old books before, but none that at least looked this old, and they were not at a museum. And so I picked up one book, Charles Dickinson's A Tale of Two Cities. Like, oh, this is cool. I'm looking at it, and it's like, man, this, this paper feels different. I, you know, I'm not used to feeling paper like this. You know, it has a different texture to it. And it, it smells particularly older than what I'm used to smelling with older books. And then I look at the copyright, 1908. So wow. he, and not only that, but then he all then he had a number of other Charles Dickens books that were published in the early 1900s. Then I'm looking at all these other books on like philosophy and uh, just all these great American classics. Mark Twain, 1878. Uh, not necessarily the Mark Twain book was 1878, but all these other books, A Tale of Two Cities, published 1878. And I've never held a book, let alone smelt a book. That was published in 1870, and he had all of Winston Churchill's biographies on World War II, first editions, and all this really cool stuff, and like every book I picked up was absolutely amazing. And I, it's got a, it, it was one of the coolest experiences I've ever had with the book, I guess. Um, I mean, my, minus a Playboy, if you get my drift. But, I, I, I mean, have you ever looked at a book or held a book in your hand that was so old? 
I'm I'm trying to think. The oldest book that I've that I that I know that I've held was that that I mean I'm, I'm sorry. The oldest, the only book that I know that I've held that was like extremely old was um, from the '40s, very very early '40s, uh, when the Von Trapp family went on tour. And they had, uh, one of them kept like a diary and stuff and everybody kind of, uh, signed it throughout the time that they were on tour in the States and they left it in Tacoma and, um, donated it to the library there for whatever reason. So I actually got to hold that and touch it. I actually, and, and it was actually, I didn't actually physically get to touch it. I had to wear gloves. I had to wear cotton gloves in order to look at it and everything. So that's pretty cool. That's, that's as, you know, as close as I can get to being as cool as you. Well, that's cool too. I mean, most people probably think the Von Trapp family like was created for the sound of music. (laughs) That's pretty funny. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good. We had successful Thanksgivings in our own little ways, which is nice. Yes, we did. All right, well then, let's go ahead and jump right in to tickling the old mail sack, as it were. Are you ready, sir? Tickle away. All right, well, we don't have any email, but you, of course, can email if you would like uh, by doing so. Sending an email to the show at slscast.com. We do have a Twitter follower to mention, and that would be Eric Foster, at Eric1Foster. And um, I... I I don't know if Lazio is in Italy or what, but apparently this guy is from Roma, Lazio. So um, thank you very much, Eric, for following us there. Uh, once again, we're just getting more and more internationally uh, known. Yeah, we're slowly but surely proselytizing. So the other people haven't unfollowed us from Twitter? I- I'm guessing not. They don't. <laughs> Twitter's nice and doesn't send us the unfollows. <laughs> So, anyways, uh, but you, of course, can uh, follow us on Twitter as well if you would like by following at the SLS cast. So, without further ado, let us go to the news. What do you say? Terrific. All right, folks, here we go. It's the news. <laughs> And first up from me, first of my two pieces of news from Deadline.com by way of Nancy Tartaglione. Doctor Strange crosses $600 million worldwide. Now MCU's biggest single character intro. Yes! Doctor, I'm sorry, Disney slash Marvel's Doctor Strange passed into the $600 million plus dimension this weekend with a total of $616 million worldwide through Sunday. Yes, that's right. Right. In further milestones, the Scott Dick Derrickson directed pick is the ninth MCU title to cross the $600 million mark and Disney's fifth 2016 movie to do so. And guess what? Japan, meanwhile, is still to come with a, 20, with a January 27th release. Um, I mean, this is just ridiculous. Uh, what do you think, Tim? Is this surprising to you that... Um, a character that virtually no one has heard of just doing this well? Or do you think it just is because at this point Marvel is virtually unstoppable and then, of course, they put Benedict Cumberbatch in the role? 
Well, they kind of struck gold with Benedict Cumberbatch. I mean, he is one of the hot things currently trending in Hollywood especially. But also, Marvel is a well-oiled machine. People, regardless of what movie they put out, will go and see that movie. It's like the Transformers movies. People will always go see a Transformers movie. That's why we're on Transformers 5 or 6 or whatever we're on now. So people will always go see Marvel movies as long as they're being churned out. The great thing about Doctor Strange, though, other than Benedict Cumberbatch, is that it's a different type of story. It's a little, it's more fantastical. And yeah, we had Thor, but Thor was still a little clunky and more so in the vein of an, an Avengers movie. And this one is a little bit more off to the side. It's its own little brand, I guess. So it doesn't surprise me all too much. Right on. Okay. Well, like I said, I've only got the two pieces. So what do you got for us, sir? All right, so my first couple pieces of news. Oh, ooh, I think you were so excited about your beer. You don't know what my news is. It's nothing that exciting, but... <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, no, actually, I don't know what your news is. So I, I am waiting with bated breath. All right, so my uh, I'm going to knock out a couple pieces of news real quick. First two are from SlashFilm.com. First up, being related to Jason Bourne. Jason Bourne sequel likely to happen. Bourne Legacy sequel less likely to happen. Written by Angie Han, and it says this. It took a while to get Matt Damon back into the Bourne franchise, but the wait paid off handsomely at the box office as Jason Bourne took in $415 bucks worldwide. So the question now, of course is what's next for the series? Will Damon return again? Will he bring Jason Bourne director Paul Greengrass back with him? And what of Jeremy Renner's Aaron Cross? Might Bourne Legacy finally get a sequel? Producer Frank Marshall addressed these questions and more in a recent interview, and this is what he said. I have spoken to them both, Matt Damon and Paul Greengrass. Obviously, they're very pleased with how the movie turned out. It's really about the story, just like on this one. Everyone said, if you come to us with a good story, we'll think about it. And he also goes on to say that, so right now, we're taking a pause, and then we're going to dive back in and try to find a story. We did leave it wide open at the end of the movie to continue on in Bourne's world, so we'll see what we can come up with. End all quotes there. And um, another one about uh, sequels, I guess, to a semi-popular franchise, I suppose. Again, from SlashFilm.com, written by Ethan Anderton. Ivan Reitman says there are many more Ghostbusters movies in development. When the reboot of Ghostbusters arrived this year, Sony Pictures was banking on the movie being successful enough to warrant a whole new franchise. They were confident that a sequel would happen, but the box office numbers indicated that might not be in the cards anymore. We know director Paul Feig is still hoping he gets to take a crack at a sequel, but there's been no word on whether or not a sequel will actually happen. However, that doesn't mean we won't be getting more Ghostbusters movies in some form or another in the future. Ivan Reitman was the original director and producer of Ghostbusters back in 84, and he took a producing role on the reboot as well. He was recently interviewed on the Mr. Wavy podcast via comicbook.com, where he indicated that there are still big plans for the future of Ghostbusters franchise. Reitman offered this quick quote on the matter. 
quote, There's going to be many other Ghostbusters movies. They're just in development right now. End quote. Does that mean the possibility of a sequel to this year's reboot could possibly still be in the cards? If it's possible, you can expect a much lower budget for the sequel this time around, which could benefit the movie. Figs Ghostbusters felt like it was trying too hard to be a blockbuster tentpole in its third act, abandoning what worked fairly well in the first half of the movie. The article does go on from there. Matt, what do you think about these two pieces of news regarding the Jason Bourne possible sequel and uh, the idea of having, quote, many, end quote, more Ghostbusters movies? Yeah... Um, not really excited about either prospect, to be honest with you. I'm pretty much done with Jason Bourne at this point. Um, I think if they were going to do anything worthwhile, they should have, con- they should have continued with the, um, with the splinter break where we had Jeremy Renner and, you know, the Bourne legacy and whatnot. Um, and in terms of Ghostbusters, <laughs> just fucking let it die. Just, just let it go. Seriously. <laughs> Please stop. <laughs> And that's all I have to say. Oh, is my turn again? <laughs> it can be, or I can do one more. So you, you want me to go again? Just go so. ahead. Knock yourself out. Okay. <laughs> Variety.com, the upshot of Billy Lynn, movies in virtual reality don't mix. But shouldn't they? This is written by Owen Gleiberman, and it says this. Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk is the most accomplished and provocative movie in a long time that ever went down as a debacle. From the moment it premiered at the New York Film Festival in October, it has been viewed by media culture as a colossal misfire. A highbrow Ben-Hur, a movie no one seeking a good night out at the movies would want to go near. Now that the film has opened wide and the numbers are in, the dire reaction seems complete. No one wanted to go near it. Yet the film's failure to connect isn't as simple as it sounds. You might call Billy Lynn an audacious experiment that got cut off at the knees. Directed by Ang Lee, it's an earnest drama about an Iraq war soldier that was filmed in a brave new format, but it only got to be exhibited in that format in two theaters out of 1,175. And that format, again, of course, is the 3D 4K at 120 frames per second. A situation dictated by a combination of technology, most theaters weren't equipped to show it, and economics, the film studio Sony Pictures wasn't about to invest in updating those theaters so that they could show it. And by the fact that test audience overall didn't react well to the format, if they'd been over the moon about it, perhaps the economics would have changed. This was not, to put it mildly, a case of genius planning. The movie, whatever its virtues or limitations, as storytelling, carried a built-in hook, one that had the potential to speak to viewers who've been groomed by the digital age to be seekers of new technology. When you watch Billy Lynn, the high frame rate combined with the 4K resolution results in in a crisp, bright, sharp image that turns the movie's screen into a diorama with no glass pane in front of it, one that you feel that you've actually entered. At moments, you're practically right there in the room along with the actors, Some have likened the experience to HDTV, but I've never encountered a TV image that had the tactile immediacy as Billy Lynn. Does that in itself mean the format succeeds? Not necessarily. 
Yet it's bold, and vivid, and grabby, and new. It's an experiment that's utterly worth seeing. To make a movie with a potentially revolutionary visual texture, and then to basically say to audiences across the country, would you like to have this groundbreaking experience? Well, guess what? You can't! Does not represent an instance of good marketing or smart cinema. You can make a case, and I would, that Ang Lee, in choosing to hang his eye-popping hyper-reality ride on a tale of Iraq war soldiers who are shipped for PR purposes back to the U.S., where they're paraded like human action figures during the halftime show of a Dallas Cowboys game, made a staggering mistake. If you find it hard to wrap your head around the concept of Billy Lynn, that's because the concept sounds oxymoronic. A visual trip wedded to a subject that couldn't have less to do with visual flim-flam. Beyond that, let's be honest, is there an audience out there? Has there ever been one for an Iraq war movie that's not an explosive combat action film like American Sniper? Billy Lynn has a couple of startling battle sequences, but it's basically a wallow in highly tentative liberal message movie emotions of alienation and despair. It's the kind of movie that's been failing to connect at the box office ever since 9-11. Just look at The Hurt Locker, which earned a grand total of $17 million domestic. In other words, it couldn't even use its movie of the year accolades, including the Academy Award for Best Picture, to break out of the indie ghetto. Combine that with the most inaccessible, not-coming-to-a-theater-near-you format, and you have a perfect storm of prestige movie defeat. And the article goes on for quite a bit more. I read about a little bit less than half of the article. Again, that was a Variety article written by Owen Gleiberman. The upshot of Billy Lynn, movies and virtual reality don't mix, but shouldn't they? Matt, do you have any comments, questions, or concerns about what Owen Gleiberman had to say? I, I think he has... I mean, it seems like he, he has a point, and he's... Um... Got kind of the right idea in terms of kind of comparing and contrasting the realities of the situation in terms of performance versus what the film is setting out to do. But at the same time, I think that he's missing the bigger picture, which is that the movies struggle um, not because of um, artistry necessarily or anything, but because the movies themselves are flawed. Um, and I think you have to put out a product that people are not just that, not that they should be interested in seeing, but that they want to see. And what happened with, you know, especially with Billy Lenz is it's, it was, it was something that while it should be interesting. And they're definitely, and like we covered last week, there are certainly great themes and stuff uh, to explore in the movie. The movie failed on a lot of different aspects. And not to mention, it was something that wasn't, that just didn't grab you um, or would not necessarily grab the general moviegoer at large. And um, 
I think that's, that's the bigger issue. Um, once you've achieved that, then I think you can start arguing whether or not it was a good idea to do the VR stuff or to do the, you know, 120 frames per second or, um, to put things in IMAX and whatever, uh, and what have you, depending on Hurt Locker or, uh, American Sniper, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of where I land on those. But on a technical side though, uh, and I guess this is something that we really didn't talk about in great detail last week when we did review Billy Lynn. But as a technical side, do you think showcasing for the first time this technology, the 3D 120 frames per second film style, shouldn't have been used on a different genre of film? Maybe like sci-fi or what Owen Gleiberman says here close to the end of the article. Maybe fantasy, kind of like Avatar? No. No, I, I, I guess I maybe think, to like get more people behind it. Well, no, I, and that's why I'm saying I think it has to be the proper movie. It doesn't necessarily have, I, I don't think you should pigeonhole it because, um, if you try and pigeonhole the technology to something that people are already predisposed to, then all you do is make it so that any kind of serious movie or any kind of movie that doesn't fit that mold, um, immediately falls to the wayside in terms of having a probable use for the technology. Uh, let's take Hacksaw Ridge, for example. Hacksaw Ridge is a movie that, again, see, even, even still, this one, as, as good as Hacksaw Ridge is, is also something that's not gripping the people the way that it should, because while it's super interesting, it's, the story it's telling is so very unique. But at the same time, that is like ultra gritty realism. Could you imagine seeing that in 120 frames per second? Or could you imagine seeing that in 3D? Um, you know, in true 3D, like filmed in 3D? Um, there, there's room for it beyond sci-fi, beyond fantasy or whatever. I think it's just going to take the right kind of story. Um, I don't think that Ang Lee, for example, is necessarily wrong to want to do it. I just think, again, the vehicles are the wrong vehicles. But I don't think that that means it automatically has to be fantasy or it automatically has to be sci-fi or it automatically has to be a comic book movie. Um, because, again, that's just going to feed into the cycle of it's only those kind of movies that can ever happen. Well, right. I mean, in that regard, I definitely agree with you. I guess what I'm saying is to to launch the platform, kind of like what Avatar did. Avatar was really the movie that made the 3D, the modern-day 3D movie-going experience, what it is now. And, of course, that led to stuff like Billy Lynn. You know, we're seeing more drama-esque type of movies in sure. 3D. I, and um, and okay. I guess that's what I was saying about more of like a fantasy or sci-fi or a bigger budget movie utilizing this technology just to get people going to see it. You know, you know I, what I mean? You know, I think you – yes. And I think you definitely present – a very good counter argument to my point. And, and what you, what you just mentioned is totally fair. Um, but when you look at the impact of Avatar as a whole, people don't give two flying shits about Avatar today. 
everybody was like, oh my god, this movie is so amazing to go and watch in the movie theater. And hey, I was one of them. I am so glad that I, that I saw this movie in IMAX and 3D with my buddy Mike. I literally, where we were sitting in the theater, I, like at the very end of the movie when they're, you know, resurrecting Jake or whatever, I think his name's Jake. Um, see, I don't even remember his name. Um, uh, I literally, sh- the way it was shot and everything, I literally felt like I was in and amongst the, uh, the people as they were, you know, praying and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I get it. I get it. You're right. That, that type of movie. But the thing is, is that beyond that, nobody really cares. And the movie itself doesn't hold up. It, I mean, it's got plot holes aplenty. Um, it, it's really not very well acted overall. The, the, uh, storyline is ridiculous. You know, so it's got the exact opposite problem. Yes, the technology was just holy crap amazing and utilized perfectly to tell that story. But, that movie in and of itself has really done nothing beyond what it did in the movie theater and introduced it. I think what people like Ang Lee are trying to do with like Billy Lynn's halftime walk, long halftime walk is the exact opposite. They're trying to showcase this amazing technology, but not have to have you go and watch avatar again. And I think that there's there, we haven't found it yet, but I think there's a middle ground here. So you, but you definitely, I mean, you are, you hit the nail on the head. Avatar did do that. You can't, you can't take that away from James Cameron and his technological, technological vision for 3D and the CGI and the way it was done. But the movie was just kind of blah. On the other hand, we have technology that is absolutely amazing being utilized in a movie that, um, is so blah, people don't even want to go see it. <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, this is my last piece of news here real quick. From theguardian.com by way of Catherine Shord. Selma is 100% historically accurate, but imitation game just 41.4% says study. A scene-by-scene analysis of... Re- uh, an- um, blah, blah, blah. A scene-by-scene analysis of... Oh my god, have another beer, Matt. A scene-by-scene analysis of recent Oscar contenders by Datasite Information is Beautiful gives full marks for historical accuracy to Martin Luther King biopic. Uh, the liberties taken by films purporting to retell real-life stories vary enormously, a new study has found. The database site Information is Beautiful, and that would be informationisbeautiful.net, looked at 14 key fact-based Oscar contenders since the turn of the decade, examining the veracity of each scene. They found that while every single incident in Selma, Ava Du... DuVernay's pains, quote, painstaking, end quote, biopic of civil rights leader Martin Luther King seemed to sound other similar films fell short. However, the study does not allow for admitted information simply examining those scenes which the film chooses to be clu- to include. Uh, let's see here. It says only 41.4% of the scenes in Alan, in Alan Turing movie, The Imitation Game, were deemed, quote, unquote, real. 
quote, to be fair, end quote, says the analysts of the first film, quote, shoehorning the incredible complexity of the Enigma machine and cryptography in general was never going to be easy, but this film just rips the historical record to shreds, end quote. Uh, let's see here. Graham Moore's screenplay picked up the film's sole Oscar in 2015. Now, I'm going to stop there. That uh, There's definitely a bit more to this article. The thing is, is that this you, okay, so if you go to informationisbeautiful.net, uh, and they do, this thing, it's great, it's very easy to use, it's color-coded, they explain what the color-coded is, um, and it goes from blue to uh, light blue to light pink to red, in terms of true, truish, falsish, false, and then they have white for unknown, which is things that they just simply, for whatever reason, cannot verify in terms of historical accuracy. But the thing is, is that they also have what they call a pedantry level, which means you can set the scale to be as little as, it's just a movie. So of course they're going to take liberties and stuff. And that's the level with which Selma gets its 100% historically accurate rating. That's also not including the fact that Selma has quite a bit of um, probably at least 20 minutes worth of unknowns, so they really can't verify the veracity of the, the scenes themselves. But if you actually set the level to only the absolute truth, all of a sudden it falls to 81.4%. So... If you're looking to say, if you're looking to just excuse the movie because it's a movie, then it's a lot more forgiving. But if you're actually trying to say, wait, did this shit really go down? Especially when you're getting 100% and then you lose damn near 20% of the veracity. You know, I think once again, we can safely say that Hollywood is Hollywood. So always take it with a grain of salt. Now, that's my interpretation of this data. I can highly encourage you to both check out the Guardian article um, and go to informationisbeautiful.net where you can see this stuff. And you can literally hover over and click on the scene in question from the movie. Um, and it will tell you the movie and then the reality of the scene. So it's great. Um, what do you think, Tim? Do, do you think that movies should get a pass just because it's a movie? Or do you think that you should hold them to the higher standard of, no, hang on, did this really happen the way they say it did? I think as long as they're getting the accurate gist across, that is all right. Because we all know that with the movies, say like with Selma, they had to cram a lot of information into a two-hour long movie. And I think the movie was only two hours long, or either just a little more or a little less. And, you know, it, it, if they at least got kind of the right thing going for it and they just had to embellish it a little bit, and as long as it's not like they took a, a lot of liberties or like the liberties that they took was night and day different, then I think that's okay. And I really don't have a problem with that because, again, it, it's a movie. And if they do a great job with the movie, I'm hoping that it will allow people or influence people to go back and read up on that subject. You know, again, like Selma, like uh, Hacksaw Ridge. I don't know if Hacksaw Ridge is on there or not. I remember hearing that imitation game wasn't all that accurate. It was more, it took a lot, many more liberties. But when you watch the movie, you can kind of just tell. It's just one of those movies where, I, like, it seems a lot more interesting than probably 
what actually happened. So it just depends on what liberties they take and how they go about taking them. Fair enough. Um, and I, it looks like the most recent film they have on here is The Big Short. So hopefully we'll get to uh, see... Hopefully this site continues on because I thought this is definitely a cool site. So I'm glad that the article pointed to the site. Uh, and that is going to be my news, sir. Um, did you have anything to close off the news or no? I, I, I do. It's probably going to make you laugh, but probably piss you off quite a bit. Well, maybe piss you off. But real quick, I just wanted to mention two passings. These two were better known for their TV roles, but because they are to me, celebrities, and I appreciated their very existence, uh, especially growing up, that I just had to mention them. The first being Ron Glass. He passed away at the age of 71. He portrayed Detective Ron Harris and Barney Miller and Shepard, Daryl Book, and Serenity. A couple movies he was in, uh, he was in Lakeview Terrace. I remember him being in the Sinbad movie, House guest. <laughs> so, I mean, he wasn't the most prolific movie actor, but he has been in a ton of TV shows. And I guarantee you, if you have no idea what the man looks like behind the name of Ron Glass, do a quick Google search, do a quick IMDb search, and I guarantee you, you will recognize him from something. And then, of course, Florence Henderson passed away. At the age of 82, she was Mama Brady in The Brady Bunch. She's been in a number of movies as well. I think mostly recently cameos as like the sassy, sexy older woman, for example. Because in real life, I mean, she was pretty sassy and could be very sexy, but mainly just sassy and feisty. So RIP to both Ron Glass and again, Florence Henderson. But my last piece of news is again from Variety.com. Uh, this here is written by Nick Vivarelli. Disney changes Moana title in Italy, where it has porn star connotations. From Rome, Disney's Moana will soon roll out across Italy, but under a new name, Oceana, a change widely believed to be prompted by the fact that the name of the film's titular Polynesian princess is also that of a famous Italian porn star. For Italian adults, at least, Moana is pretty much synonymous with Moana Posey, a porn actress and TV personality who is still a household name even though she died in 1994. <laughs> She's like the Selena of... Italian porn stars, it sounds like. While Disney Italy is not commenting on the name change, the company's head of theatrical marketing in the country, David Romani, acknowledged during a meeting of Italian exhibitors last year that they were thinking about this issue. Shortly afterwards, Disney issued its first Italian poster for the pick, with Oceana as its title. Quote, there are two very simple reasons for the title change, end quote, said an Italian marketing expert who did not want to be quoted by name. Quote, one is that if you type Moana into a Google search in Italy, you risk coming up with porn videos, and it's very expensive and a waste of money to try and change that, end quote. The other reason cited by the marketing executive is that, quote, in any Italian focus group, Moana is Moana Posey, the porn star, end quote. 
Elsewhere in Europe, including France and Spain, the animated musicals being released as Vaina or Veana for various reasons, including the fact that in Spain, Moana is a registered brand. It's not unusual for Disney and other studios and international distributors to tailor film titles to national sensibilities. And all quotes there, but the article does go on for a bit. Again, that was Variety.com. Disney changes Moana title in Italy where it has porn star connotations. What do you think about this, Matt? Moana is just in so much controversy ever since <laughs> Halloween. Nah, okay, that one, you know what, I, I mean, I personally think it's kind of dumb, but um, I think, you know, if it's going to save more trouble than it's going to cause, okay, I get it, you know. Um, and I think it would definitely cause a lot more trouble for millions of kids in Italy to start searching porn <laughs> because they're trying to find their favorite uh Disney princess or whatever. So I get it. I get it. I mean, it's stupid, but I get it. And that's my news. All right. Well, then that leaves us with creme de la crepe. Hi. Can I help you? Yeah. Can I have a dozen red roses, please? Oh, hi, Johnny. I didn't know it was you. Here you go. That's me. How much is it? It'll be $18. Here you go. Keep the change. Hi, doggy. You're my favorite customer. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. So, as we said, we're starting over with Malibu Express. We're starting at the beginning with Malibu Express on the Bullets, Bombs, and Babes uh, series. And basically... Um, which are our films that are written and directed, for the most part, by Andy Sedaris. Yes. Meet Cody Abilene, a private eye with an adoring public. He's an undercover operator. Hi, I'm May, and this is my friend, Faye. Yeah. This is the Countess, a government agent with her own special skills. And together, they're both headed for danger on the Malibu Express. This is Kinky. In the world of high rollers, low blows, and make my day. Sorry, babe, but I gotta have some water. The FBI wants him back. No one should suspect anything. I'm gonna nail him with a grenade. The Russians want him dead. I understand you're a private investigator. And Cody Abilene always gets his girl. So park your car. Hide your guns. They just got another case. He's hard to catch. You are continental. Hard to keep. Scoot your butts outside. Hard to figure. Starring Sybil Danning, Darby Hinton, and five Playboy Playmates. I didn't just bring you in for sex. I have a few things to fill you in on. Make tracks for the Malibu Express. No matter where you're headed, it goes all the way. Would I help any woman in distress? Yes, ma'am, I would. All right, so basically we have some kind of... <laughs> like million dollar playboy, I guess, who's a private investigator super spy. It's 
<laughs> as well. And his name, his name now, come on, his name, Cody Abilene. So because his name is Cody Abilene, um, they have to have Western music playing in the background all the goddamn time. And it's the same fucking... <laughs> It's the same fucking 12 seconds of music the whole time. So it, it starts off funny, but it ends up being really annoying and grating after a while. Anyways, uh, so Cody is hired by uh, government intelligence, and he's got to figure out uh, who's selling computer technology to the Russians. But he... Um, is encountered by a whole bunch of bad guys uh, who are trying to stop him for various reasons because it's not just because it's they're working with the Russians and stuff. But at the same time, he also comes across every single woman who is willing to take off their clothes and have sex with him, <laughs> including the best damn car saleswoman I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> ah, I need the fastest thing you got. Baby, I'm the fastest thing here. <laughs> so bad <laughs> anyways um and of course the malibu express is like his boat or something and yet he has to walk through a fucking picture a painted picture with a door <laughs> to get to his boat because it's the because it's the caboose of a train or something that his mom loved or whatever it's it's just full of complete ridiculousness now here's the thing with this movie um this movie where it's funny, I thought it was actually funnier uh, than our previous entry of Hard Ticket to Hawaii. However, there's only like a dozen funny parts to the whole movie. The rest of the movie, you're kind of like, oh, come on, get to it, get to it. And the music, the music makes it so bad too because... Um, this is just terrible honky tonk stuff the whole time. But the thing is, is that you can really see that poor Andy Sedaris, the guy really did have good ideas. He just doesn't have a fucking clue as to how to implement them. So clearly the dude either had something on his producers or just had people who were willing to throw money at him for whatever reason. Because I don't know how he made it, how he was able to make Hard Ticket to Hawaii based on Malibu Express. Uh, this movie, again, is hilarious in concept and has absolutely hilarious parts to it, but on the whole is really just kind of painful to watch. So I say no, this is not creme de la crap. Um, I'm glad that I know he's capable of better with Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Because that's going to carry me forward when we do this again. Or if I get a hair up my ass and decide to watch uh, another one of these on a whim. But Malibu Express is just a bad movie with some really funny parts in it. What do you got there, Tim? Well, you forgot to mention one of the most ridiculous parts of the movie is that which, which one of the <laughs> just the one <laughs> is that Cody Abilene and and I want you to make comments throughout this because I have a feeling you're going to you're going to remember richer details than what I'm going to kind of talk about <laughs> mm. but um Cody Abilene the private investigator his weapon of choice is a huge ass fucking <laughs> dirty hairy six dirty shooter. Hairy. <laughs> 
Yeah, Dirty Harry Six Shooter, which he carries in a perfect cartoon uh, version of a cow skin briefcase. Yes, yes, and and of course, of course, how good of a shot is he, Tim? Not very. <laughs> that fucker can't hit the broadside of a forty foot barn. But uh, you know, I, but the movie is a, is supposed to be a flat out comedy. I, I kind of I enjoyed the movie more because of that, and it was supposed to be cheeky. It was supposed to be goofy. It was supposed to be over the top, and just when it comes down to it, I thought the guy who played Cody Abilene did a pretty all right job. I think this, Darby this, Hinton. What's that's that? His name Darby Hinton. I prefer Cody Abilene. <laughs> <laughs> Darby Hinton uh-huh. and. I think there's about maybe five minutes of this movie that was done, I think, really well. It's like if they had better writing, a better idea, and it was not just about setting up the next boob shot, (laughs) then I think this could have been a catchy little movie. Because, like, it has that spirit to it. It has that liveliness. And I I don't know. I, I definitely enjoyed it more than Hard Ticket to Hawaii. I, I think the really the only creepiest thing, because what got me with Hard Ticket to Hawaii, where you have all this like nudity and softcore porn stuff, and you know you get aroused by it all, but then you have this disgusting, gross mutant snake that pops up every once in a while, which really turns you off. Like it's a stark contrast to the sexiness. What was my stark contrast with Malibu Express was that Cody Abilene looked exactly like my dad in 1985 and that just weirded me the fuck out is that where your dad secretly got his fortune he was he 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 went by darby hinton and uh (laughs) my my dad is cody abilene (laughs) (laughs) so uh, cody abilene his weapon of choice is that huge ass dirty hairy six shooter but matt what is his car of choice (laughs) at least at the beginning of the movie i thought it's the ferrari isn't it was it a Ferrari? I thought it was like a fucking fire red DeLorean that he named Dolores. That's it. Okay, yeah, it was a DeLorean. I'm sorry. I thought it was a Ferrari, but yeah. But did you notice that he had the DeLorean or something at the beginning, but then he's driving a red Oldsmobile by the end of the movie. So it's like Yeah, cuz it's a- by the it's like cuz something cuz something was in the shop at some point. And then he had to go and get the other car when he got stranded because he got pretend beat up on the side of the road. Oh, you mean he got he got raped? No, no, when he gets pretend beat up on the side of the road by the two dudes. Well, I know, that's what I'm saying, is that there's like a narration. He's like, what a day this is. I did this with so-and-so and this girl. I took a, uh, I took a long walk in the desert, and I got raped. Boy, that was really a horseshit trip to Palm Springs. I got my ass whipped, my borrowed car shot up, and I was raped. You know, time to see just what the hell's going on around here. What oh, a day yeah, today is turning yeah, out to right. be. Yeah, that's right. I forgot he did claim that he was raped at the car dealership. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot that happened. You, to be honest, I have no idea what this movie was about. I had no idea it was a mystery, trying to be like a proper murder mystery type of deal. Well, what I about still, the computer I have no what idea the what the conspiracy credits? was. What about uh, the computer credits at the beginning? Oh, yeah. How about gonna... that? <laughs> and the the chicken drag from the second movie is in the first movie as well. And, or the dude who you know who, who's who's clearly gay and um, dresses as a woman 
in, at the bar in Hard Ticket to Hawaii, plays the dad at the house, and then goes to perform at the bar later on, uh, or at the drag uh, in the drag show. It's a shared Andy Sedaris universe that they have going on here. I it guess all so. connects. It sure as hell makes the movie poster um, at the beginning of Hard Ticket to Hawaii a lot more. Um, it make it that makes a lot more sense now. So and and how about the people's names? Like the best pair of boobs in this movie belong to a race car driver named June Knockers, spelt with an H, <laughs> <laughs> which he calls his old friend. Like my old friend June Knockers, spelled with an H. The idea of her of her boobs are are, are he never mentions them ever. It's kind of like he's so used to it that. It's just kind of like a passe type of thing. Then you have other ridiculous characters like the Buffington family, the really dumb, over-the-top, trailer, hillbilly, trash stereotype. Oh, God, that we're trying to race him? Yeah, that they try to keep drag racing him and everything? Oh, God. Yeah, I mean, every movie like this uh... requires a Buffington family, I-, I believe. On my way back to the marina, I stopped by the grocery store to get me a peanut brittle candy bar. I just need to think things through. Oh no, not the Buffington family again. What's wrong? You're yelling! I don't want to race you guys, come on! All I have is this junked out old Dotson Z. It wouldn't even be fair. Fair? You want fair? Go to church, boy! Come on, let's go! Come on, I'm ready, let's go! Come on! I'm just just going to spank you just to raise you! So are you ready? Watch this! Watch this, Tony! Once again, I've been disgraced by the Buffingtons. I'm rapidly losing face. If I don't whip their butts next time, my daddy's going to whip mine. Like, there's always a Buffington family in a movie like this. I forgot about that. Yeah, I'm trying to find my quotes. I, I wrote down some great quotes Oh, and here do you remember the, the the cameo of Regis and Joy Philbin? In the movie? Oh, and did you notice their credit at the end of the movie? Special <laughs> appearance by Regis and Joy Philbin. Like, they got their own obvious credit. It begs to ask a couple questions. Like... Did they agree to do this? Was it like a bet? Was it a favor? Or did they just kind of like buy the rights to use them in in the movie? Is what I I think that might be the question I would ask Regis Philbin if I ever got a chance to meet the guy. What was wrong at the time? But okay, so so quotes with the movie. A couple great ones here. This girl asks this guy Shane, "What a guy like you do in jail?" And he replies with Ate a lot of furniture, baby. Not, not sure Not sure what that means. Or, what do you usually have for dinner? In the response, reservations. Badunts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so when it comes down to it, so far with these Andy Sedaris movies or Sedaris movies, I, I think in a way they're, they're purposefully supposed to be hammy and over the top. With this movie, everything is just askew. It isn't right looking. Like certain actors shouldn't talk like a particular way. Certain actors shouldn't look a particular way, wear a particular thing, or even stand in a particular stance. Everybody is doing the opposite of what they actually should be doing. In that particular way, I guess, that's kind of creme de la crappy. But because these movies are supposed to be over the top, supposed to be goofy, they're just bad. I don't know if I necessarily call it creme de la crap, 
But I will say this, it is a very entertaining watch. I did enjoy this movie a little bit more than Hard Ticket to Hawaii, but that's really not saying much when you're really comparing these two. Regardless, I do say check it out and let us know what you think. Okay, so yes, creme de la crap or no? Because if you said you said that Hard Ticket to Hawaii was creme de la crap, and you're saying Malibu Express is better than Hard Ticket to Hawaii, so that means yes, this is creme de la crap for you. Wait, I, I called. I thought I didn't say Hard Ticket to Hawaii was creme de la crap. You did, sir. Oh wow, creme de la. I'm in a. I'm in a conundrum. Creme de la crapundrum. Crapundrum. <laughs> creme de la cr- credulity. Yeah. You know what? I um. I'll give it to it. Uh, since since I gave. Crim de la crap status to Hartik to Hawaii. I'll say Malibu Express deserves it as well. <laughs> All right. Well, then that's going to bring us to the end of Crim de la crap. And let us know, let you know about next week's bonus segment, which will be three squared. We're going to be. Covering- oh, wait, wait. You know what? No, no, no. no. I, I changed my mind. No, no, no. It's not Crim de la crap. I changed my mind. No, no. Okay. It, Malibu Express is not Crim de la crap. Down at the wire. I know. But I, yeah, no. Okay, so no, no, nay, he says nay. All right, so next week's uh, bonus segment will be three squared. We're going to be doing anti-Christmas movies. Now, it's not that Christmas in and of itself is bad or anything like that. These are movies where the main character, for whatever reason, is anti-Christmas. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a holiday movie per se, but um, just something where, for whatever reason, the main protagonist... uh, just doesn't like Christmas for some reason. Uh, I don't know that we will find a whole lot of non-holiday movies in that regard, but that's what we mean when we say anti-Christmas movies. So, without further ado, let us get to the movies. What do you say there, Tim? Sounds good. Then here we go, folks. It's the movies. <laughs> Two movies for you this week. From the theaters, we have Allied. And from Netflix, we have Into the Inferno. Where do you want to start there, sir? Let, let, let's take a dip into some volcanic documentary. Uh, Into the Inferno. <laughs> Very good. Into the Inferno, 2016 documentary film directed by Werner Herzog. Uh, let's see. This is a movie uh, that he... Explores active volcanoes from around the world, and he also follows a volcanologist uh, by the name of Clive Oppenheimer. So uh, they go to Indonesia, they go to Iceland, North Korea, they go to Ethiopia, um, and basically the the idea is that they are trying to understand the genesis of volcanoes, uh, truly uh, find where and how the destructive impacts of them are going to be uh, most useful so that they can prevent that, if, if at all possible, or at least try and harness it. And in the process, uh, Herzog is also trying to kind of um, understand not uh, not just our planet, but how we fit within it, especially against the harsh realities of something as devastating and uh, earth-shattering, truly, as a volcano. Um, you know what? I, I um, did a little research and homework on Werner Her- Herzog after I 
watch this movie. And I, I gotta say, I can, I certainly respect this man's body of work. And I think that, um, to a large degree, he is very justified. It, it, all of the praise he's gotten has been justified. Uh, I can't say that I've enjoyed all of his movies or anything, uh, of that nature. And there are certainly some that I haven't seen yet. But, um, it's pretty clear that this guy has definitely had a worldwide impact in the world of cinema. And um, understanding that and knowing that, even going into this movie, I have to say, I was bored. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I understand what they were trying to do. Uh, I, now, it's, in terms of just cinematography... Absolutely gorgeous. Don't don't mistake that. Uh, in terms of the stark contrast of beauty of nature versus its devastation um, in a juxtaposition, absolutely. And in terms of wanting to inform, I, I understand it. I get where it's coming from. But I truly felt like an eighth grader watching a film strip from back in the day. Back in the day, I don't even know if they do film strips anymore. Um, I just, I wasn't moved. I, I, I get what they were trying to do. I, I get like the tribal aspects and stuff. Um, I understand it. And in terms of just the beauty of the cinema, it is beautiful to look at, but I just didn't want to watch an hour and 40 minutes of, landscapes uh, it, it just did not connect or resonate with me it's really all i have to say I, i'm sorry if you are a big huge warner uh, herzog fan or if you um you know, or if you did get more out of it than i did i just felt that it was incredibly slow and incredibly boring 2.25 out of 5 what do you got there tim I got a little bit more out of this movie than you, Matthias. I I mean, I haven't seen every Werner Hartzog movie, but I, I've seen a number of them, and I've thoroughly enjoyed them for what they are. Though I might not have liked some of the ones that people absolutely love, I, I definitely appreciate what he brought to the table. And he is a very talented guy. And especially when he does documentaries, this is not his first rodeo as a documentarian. Um, he's releasing another documentary this year called Lo and Behold, Reveries of the Connected World, uh, which he explores the internet in the connected world. Um, he also did The Cave of Forgotten Dreams back in 2010, which I believe is still on Netflix. Grizzly Man in 2005. And... The one that was kind of what spawned Into the Inferno, which was Encounters at the Edge of the World or Encounters at the End of the World. I forget the name of it, but that is where he met volcanologist Clive Oppenheimer. And that kind of helped him come up with the idea of making this particular movie about the absolute beauty of volcanoes and what they give to culture and society or even mankind. One of the most common complaints about this movie or criticisms about this movie is that it's a meandering film. Is this movie meandering? Yes, just a little. But her song creates a compelling look at the mystery behind volcanoes and how they influence anything 
or everything, from one's culture to the beginning of the Homo sapiens. It may have taken me until the North Korea segment, which uh, is pretty much the finale, and that's when he goes to one of the North Korea... Well, it used to be a North Korean volcano. I forget what it's actually called now, but I guess a lake, (laughs) which erupted some many, 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 many years ago, which has created this massive lake. And all the North Koreans look to that crater, look the remnants of that volcano as something sacred, as something holy. And during that North Korea segment, he spends a lot of time discussing the culture of the North Korean people. But it took me until pretty much the end of the North Korean segment, which again was pretty much the finale of the movie itself, to understand exactly where Herzog was taking this film. And I enjoyed everything he was showing me. I thought his documentary is just as mystifying as its subject. Her song embodies just that dry wit, a captivating narration, and just the infectious intrigue, which you can find in pretty much all of his documentaries. He is genuinely intrigued by the subject matter. And it's, again, it's just infectious. Though it took me a while to realize that this movie was in some way about volcanoes inspiring culture, again, I was still kind of enamored with it. I was still mystified and captivated by the film. And that is why I give this documentary 4.5 out of 5. Probably should be a 4, even. If I was going to rate this on Netflix, I'd probably give it a 4 instead of a 5. It's just a good movie. It's just a little bit meandering, and I think... It takes a lot of thought and a lot of thinking to figure out exactly which conclusion he's trying to make with this particular documentary. So 4.5 out of 5 into the inferno for me. All right, all right. Okay, that leaves us with Allied, the 2016 World War II romantic thriller film directed by Robert Zemeckis, written by Stephen Knight. It stars Brad Pitt and Marion Cotillard, Jared Harris, Simon McBurney, and Lizzie Kaplan. Uh, let's see here. So, 1942, World War II, of course, we've got Canadian intelligence officer Max Vatan, uh, who travels to Casablanca to assassinate a German ambassador. He is partnered with a French Renaissance, uh, I'm sorry, Renaissance resistance fighter uh, named Marianne, played by Marianne uh, Cotillard, who had escaped from France after her resistance group was compromised and killed. Um, they are, uh, they're initially very much, um, you know, professional. Look, we're not, you know, we have to masquerade together, but, um, you know, we're, we're professionals. We're going to do things right. But then, of course, as time gets uh, closer to the real deal, you know, we could die tomorrow. <laughs> using the using the classic World War II line, you know, boys going off to war. I could die while I'm out there. Let me die a man, baby. <laughs> so, naturally, they get it on. Uh, turns out they're successful. They move on to... Um, uh, live together and be all married and everything. She ends up having a kid and then all of a sudden, oh, but she could be a spy. And poor Max is tasked with finding out if she is. And if she is, he's got to kill her. So there's your movie. Um, shenanigans at Sue, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I will just simply say this. You've got a couple of really, really good um, 
Like you've got a just great actor, great actress. You've got an amazing premise and a really good director. Um, so what hurts me for this movie is that the acting is great. The characterizations themselves are really good. But the story that Zemeckis puts together is just so very tired. Um, and it's just not, it's a movie that is literally not for young adults. It's not for adults. It's literally for, uh, the over 40 crowd. Um, it's not that that's a bad thing necessarily, but, um, with the kind of money that people like Brad Pitt command, you need a stronger story than this. Um, I don't know what they thought they could bring to it, but clearly they thought they, they could give it the gravitas it needed. I don't know. Um, this, because the story is so tired, um, the movie plays out in a very, really and truly a pedantic way. It, it's not that it's predictable, even though it kind of is. Um, and it's not that it's poorly shot. It's just that, the story doesn't have anywhere to go um, because you've created a scenario where you have people who care about each other and you expect them to turn on one another or did they ever really care about each other? Um, and the way that they go about creating that tension is not with the two main characters. And that's where you've got to go in a movie like this. So it's not a terrible movie by any stretch of imagination. But I can't really even say that I liked it either. 2.75 out of 5. Uh, you know, give it a shot on a Netflix and chill night. Bring us home there, Tim. I'm glad I went to go see this movie. I like what Zemeckis was trying to do. He went out on a limb. Uh, he's been going out on a lot of limbs with films throughout his latter career. Look at... The Polar Express, for example, that was the first movie of its kind to use that type of motion capture animation fully. He, he ended up doing Beowulf and A Christmas Carol. He made his live-action return with Flight. Uh, and then this past year, he released The Walk, which utilized 3D in a very interesting, cool way uh, to simulate the tightrope walk across the two towers. But he is not using... 3D technology for Allied. In fact, he is going back in time. The techniques that he is using are old-school techniques. Uh, you see a lot of people sitting in front of blue screens, which is actually subbing out desert, for example. A lot of, like, big, romantic-y, Casablanca-esque type of themes to the first half of this movie, which I very much like. I like going retro every once in a while, and I like movies incorporating retro themes, 1940s and 1950s themes. It's just, I think the movie needed to be better. <laughs> it needed a better script. Because by the end of the movie, when you really need to care for either both of these people or one person over the other, you just really need to care about them. And I, I think despite the limb that Zemeckis walked out on when choosing to direct this film. And despite Marion Cotillard 
being such a beautiful, wonderful actress and giving a very good performance in this film. And then, despite Brad Pitt usually being a pretty good actor in films, I just thought he wasn't all that great in this movie. I don't know if it was the dialogue, I don't know if it was the direction, but I just thought his characterization was a little blah. It looked like he constantly had something else on his mind, but it didn't feel like a character trait. It just felt like the actor Brad Pitt had something else on his mind. So despite a lot of these great positive things I can say about it, I just thought the movie was miscast uh, for one particular role. I thought the script needed some more work. And I thought the movie was trying too hard, period, at trying, not necessarily trying to be retro or old school, but just trying too hard to incorporate retro themes, which, which I guess is trying too hard to be retro, I suppose. I just wanted this movie to dial it back a little bit. You could have these beautiful visuals, incorporate these wonderful techniques, but the film didn't have to be big. Uh, in fact, one of the best parts of the movie, I thought, was the opening. I thought that whole opening where it just the movie just kind of takes its time, introducing you to the character, introducing you to the stories, to when the two characters actually meet. But you also expect the movie to pick up a little bit. And whenever we are brought into these two big set pieces, the movie doesn't ever really pick up or get that much more exciting. The movie is just constantly one note for the most part. Maybe except for the last 30 minutes or so. It's just constantly one note. Unfortunately, I think all the good things about the movie collide completely with all the bad things and kind of even each other out. To where I, I'm glad I paid the money to go see it. I paid for two tickets and I don't regret seeing it. It made for a wonderful little rainy day film. So I think I'm going to stick with 3.25 out of 5. I recommend you guys going out and, and checking it out. Just let us know what you think. Because it's I, it's one of those movies. It's just one of those movies. Beautifully shot. Right on, right on. Okay, well then, that is going to bring us to the end of the movies. Next week's movies are going to be Moana and Bad Santa 2. Very excited to see that movie. All right, and without further ado, I believe that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt on Twitter, at Nitwit12345. You can climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget you can always subscribe to us on itunes favorite us on stitcher radio and of course search for us now on soundcloud so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to warner herzog i get to say this civilization is like a thin layer of ice upon a deep ocean of chaos and darkness take care cinephiles and we'll talk at you again next week
Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.